0: Amen. Please be seated. And please take the insert out of your bulletin and look at it. It will have the various passages I will refer to. I'll have a few others. We're kind of walking through uh, the timeline of Jesus Christ, his line. I do want to pause and remind you that we have a a Christmas Eve service on Wednesday night. This year it's at 6 o'clock, so be sure to note the time. 6 o'clock, if you come at 7, like it's been in the past, You'll catch us picking up the candles. We'll need help picking up the candles, so your timing will be fine, but we would prefer you came at 6. So 6 o'clock Wednesday, if you are here in town, we would love to have you and your friends come and celebrate the Lord Jesus' birth uh, once again. For these four weeks, during Advent, I'm bringing you a series of messages on the line of Christ Uh, Those specially appointed people by God in the line of Christ used to bring Jesus to us. First there was Adam, the first human being ever to live. He was given the condition uh, for life eternal to simply obey. Obey, don't eat of this tree and you will live. And we saw, of course, and we know that he failed. And we have felt the impact of that fall ever since. In fact, you can't look at the world Accurately, without understanding what happened with Adam falling. But the glorious story that starts to unfold right from the time of the fall is when God speaks to the serpent who has caused man to fall and promises to send a seed, a singular seed from the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. And it was begun. It had started. The plan of God's redeeming a people for himself begins... It unfolds from that point in Genesis chapter 3. Adam's the first human being, but the second Adam, the one that we must be in, who we must be in to be right with God, is Christ. So the connection is Adam, the first Adam, Jesus, the second Adam, who makes us able to be right with God through himself. We skipped ahead several thousand years for the sake of time and weeks we had available, and we came to Abraham. Not too far ahead in the book of Genesis, but thousands of years from the time of Adam and Eve. Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ, 4,000 years ago. This man, nothing necessarily special. Now, he was well off, he had a lot, but many people had much in these days. And he speaks to Abraham in this town or this city called Ur, In the midst of the Chaldeans, and he calls him out and says to him, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless all the nations of earth through you. So we have a picture of where the seed would come from that was promised back thousands of years prior. It would be from Abraham. Now we know initially that really, that small, that really isolated group of the Israelites that grow up out of Abraham are the initial way in which God blesses. And he brings Messiah, the seed, From the Israelites, and we see in that way how Abraham blesses the nations, how he's connected to Jesus in this way. But we also recognize, on the bigger scale, that the term being a son or a daughter of Abraham means far more than ethnicity. In fact, we know from Paul in Galatians that all those who trust in Christ—that seed, all those who trust in Christ—they are the sons and daughters of Abraham, and we see the connection there. Well. We go from 2,000 B.C. to 1,000 B.C. And last week, we looked at King David. A thousand years removed from Abraham. I think often we think uh, the the people in the Bible are closer together. This is a long span of time. A thousand years from the time of Abraham, now to the time of David. And God forecasts through David that there will be a king who will sit on the throne. The failed kings of Israel would be fulfilled by one that David kind of is a foretaste of. And Jesus will be the one who sits on David's throne, the greater son of David, known as the son of David, the anointed one, the Messiah. We saw how David really gives a crystallization of who Messiah would be, what he would do. He would rule as a king, but he would shepherd like a gentle pastor, and he would deliver us by giving himself. All this is starting to take shape in the Old Testament. We only looked at three of these people, but you can look through the chronology of the Old Testament and see it unfold, in that plan of bringing Jesus to come at the time that we now celebrate, this time of Advent. I have several verses that are on your insert, and I'll pause and pray after I read a couple of these to ask the Lord to continue to guide and direct us and to focus our minds. But for now, I want you to see a prophecy that was written about the people that we will consider today. Now, we won't consider the first human being, which is a big one, uh, not Abraham and the great nation that was made of him, uh, and not David, this king. Rather rather poor couple, an un- unassuming couple, but a couple from the house of David, who would be used by God to fulfill this prophecy, Joseph and Mary. The first time we get indication about how Messiah would come, in uh, the nature in which he would come, we read in the book of Isaiah, this great prophet who wrote, during the time of the northern kingdom's collapse into exile and captivity by the hand of the Assyrians, at that time the most powerful nation on earth. Isaiah spanned a long period of time. Almost 50 years he was a prophet. He saw the northern kingdom fall, and he started prophesying to the southern kingdom, those who were left, of which Judah belonged, what would happen to them if they didn't repent. And he forecasts some of this. But in his prophecy he lays out the final Messiah to come. Not just another temporary king to deliver them, but the ultimate Messiah and king. And he forecasts how the king will come, and then in great detail what the king will do. But Isaiah 7, verse 14, I have there printed on your insert, was written 700 years before Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem to have Jesus. Hear God's word. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. It won't be through a prophet or some other. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Here we have it, 700 years before Jesus' advent, the virgin birth foretold through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. The nature of the child born would be revealed. Emmanuel, God with us. Not just the Lord's anointed now. Yes, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. But God himself with us. The Lord himself will give this sign. And it will be God himself who is with us. The child was forecasted. And expectations were stoked. Later in Isaiah. Just two chapters further down in his prophecy. He says something else. It's not printed in your bulletin. But listen to what... Isaiah says in chapter 9 to give further detail about Messiah to come and the connection to human parents. It says in Isaiah 9, 6, for To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on, upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These are descriptors never used for a human king before, not even David. In Isaiah 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Can you imagine a king to bring no war? To bring peace and to uphold things with real justice. We cry out for justice, but we'll only have it when King Jesus is on the throne. And you know how we know this will happen? Not because it's another promise by another prophet or another king or another judge or another priest. We know because it says in Isaiah 9, verse 7, the second part, the zeal of the Lord, not the zeal of human beings the empty promises of people, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, it is the last week of Advent, a time of reflection together as a congregation as we end one calendar year and begin another. I ask you to impress us once again with your providence. You have moved the events of history according to your promise and commitment made in eternity past and confirmed in your word. Lord, today, give us a fresh consideration of your work through the years, and particularly culminating in a young Hebrew couple living 2,000 years ago. Help us to see the faith that you worked in Joseph and Mary, as well as the growth that you caused in young Jesus during his time in his earthly parents' home. Most of all, Heavenly Father, grow us in our understanding of your word so that we might be compelled to obedience and then give all praise to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah was certainly the most prolific of all the prophets with a ministry that spanned, as I mentioned, several decades and two kingdoms. His ministry with the northern kingdom was short as it fell to the Assyrians. And then the southern portion of the kingdom— started to totter towards what was then the next kingdom coming, Babylon. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, we see uh, the prediction of his birth, 700 years before he actually is born. In chapter 9, he foresees uh, the messianic significance of a child born to us and how this child would be different, and the fact that a child would be born, needing parents. But we also discover in chapter 11 of Isaiah, before he launches into all those really clear pictures of Jesus suffering for our sins. In chapter 11, listen to what Isaiah writes. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Imagine an old tree cut down, but now a shoot coming up out of it alive and ready to grow. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who is the father of David, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's the way they describe Jesus in his earthly ministry, constantly. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. That's the Messiah. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. And it goes on to give a descriptor of something only God could do. He could know the truth. He would know righteousness, and he would administer justice and peace. You know, Isaiah, though, wasn't the only prophet who forecasted Christ's coming, and the particulars about how he would be born to Joseph and Mary and where. In fact, about the same time frame, just a little bit younger than Isaiah, was the prophet Micah. Micah writes with vivid detail where Messiah would be born, and it would be, I don't know, with all due respect to, say, Lewisburg, It would be like saying it was in Lewisburg. You'd say, well, we like Lewisburg. It's got a great cider mill, but I don't know if I would say that's where the next big thing would happen. So saying Bethlehem in the time of Micah would be sort of like that, maybe even a lesser-known place. And Micah writes in chapter 5 of his prophecy, also writing to try to convince the Israelites to repent, but giving a picture of what would come. Micah 5, starting at verse 2, says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, not even really considered, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now Micah calls the one who is coming of ancient days. That is a descriptor for God himself. The ancient of days is a way to say, uh, when the day, if you went way, 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 way back, the ancient of days... The person who is the Ancient of Days would be old then. It's a way of saying they're timeless, they're eternal. The Ancient of Days is a description given to God. In fact, that's exactly how Daniel describes God the Father, is by calling him the Ancient of Days. Micah says the same thing about the Messiah who will come, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up unto the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Everything that Micah says here is packed with meaning and forecast, and it's fulfilled. And it's written almost 650 years before Jesus is born. Bethlehem, the city of David. The house of bread, it means. The bread of life would come to the house of bread. From the line of Judah, this is where Messiah comes. A ruler he would serve as, a king. He would be the Ancient of Days. That is God himself who comes. He shall serve as a shepherd in the strength of God. He'll provide security and peace. No king, no shepherd, no Messiah would do these things except for Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. There's another prophet, not just Micah, really one of the last of the prophets who minister while the southern kingdom is being finally taken captive by Babylon and then eventually Persia. They just kind of got traded off one kingdom and then into Greece and then to Rome. But at this time you have Babylon just about taking out the southern portion of Israel now, literally looting the streets, taking stuff away, people as slaves. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, you can understand why he's weeping, is watching this happen. And while God's giving him pictures of the future and the new covenant that will come, he's still speaking of the immediacy and the need of Messiah to come to relinquish this pain, to give them some kind of deliverance. In around 600 B.C., 100 years after the time of Isaiah, they were not contemporaries. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Yes, that was happening in the time of Jeremiah, without question. But it's also the very verse that is laid hold of in the New Testament to describe what happens after Jesus is born and they have to flee to Egypt and Herod kills the firstborn in Bethlehem. 600 years before, picturing The Lamentations, as Rachel weeps for her children. You know, there is an interesting development in scholarship about what may have caused the Magi, the wise men from the East, to know enough about the prophecy to come to see baby Jesus. One surmises, and many agree, that it is possible quite possible that the lost tribes of Israel had with them the Old Testament, at least as much as had been written by that point. Not all the prophets would have been in it. But there was enough prophecy that had it gone to the east, off with the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians, that perhaps those teachers there were aware of that scribe and understood that it predicted something big to happen. Moses himself wrote in Numbers 24, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's a king out of Israel. It shall crush, listen to this, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. They would have had that. And by the Spirit who knows what they were enlightened concerning. But we come to the time of Jesus' birth. It actually happened around 2 BC. I know that's confusing. Wait a minute, it should be zero, right? 2 BC he comes. It's just a matter of the problem with the calendar, not with when God sent Jesus. The passage you have before you lays out this story. The partners read this story, and I want to walk through it a bit with you so you can see and we can appreciate together The place that Joseph and Mary fulfill. Two simple, unassuming people. Just an ordinary couple, you might say. A a middle-class family in the midst of Israel at this time takes on the weight of all the prophecy that had built up the thousands of years before to come down to this moment. And here we have in the passage in the middle of your insert, Matthew 1, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Betrothal in Israel at this time was an engagement period before the marriage ceremony that was bound by contract. It was like a binding marriage contract we have now. Betrothal was very serious and viewed legally. It was even a period of time of working out some of the final property details to iron out what tribe they were originally from. Lots of stuff went into being betrothed. It was a period of evaluation, but it was also a time where they were considered together. But not ultimately consummated as a married couple would be. When Joseph found that Mary was pregnant during this period of time, and knowing it was not by him, instead of doing what many would have done, that is make it public, because he was hurt. He had to be hurt. There's no other way. He knew this. And he could have just brought this to the attention of the authorities, and she would have been dealt with harshly, possibly even executed for this sin. But despite his own hurt, He put that back, put that down, and tried to find a way to get this done secretly to divorce or to separate the contract so as not to run her through and their families through all of this. But then verse 20, we read, follow again, but as he considered these things, and you can only imagine a few verses kept about him being up all night, many nights, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Remember now back to what we read earlier in Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I don't know what Joseph was thinking while the angel spoke to him in the dream. But when he heard in his mind the echo of the words of the prophecy in Isaiah, it probably all then came together for him. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Jesus saves Yeshua, for he will save his people. From their sins, The oppression of the Jewish people was real in Rome at that time when they lived. The fact that they were forced to go put their names on the census was a huge hardship for everybody. They had to shuffle everything about and go find their home place and register there. It was law. They had to do it. The prospect for a Jewish Messiah was probably pretty ripe in the minds of everyone, Joseph included. Joseph hears that this one that his betrothed is carrying is the Messiah to come. Verse 24, we pick up in the text, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until he had given birth to a son. The marriage was not consummated until after Jesus was born. And he called his name Jesus. And notice how he calls his name Joshua or Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. So he's Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. The Lord saves, the Lord's anointed. Much attention has been given over the years to the two different genealogies that you find for Jesus. If you're reading through your gospel accounts, you'll notice one in Luke and one in Matthew, and they're slightly different. The main reason it seems that they are different is one comes more through the angle of Mary's life and perspective. The other comes through, in Matthew, through Joseph's life and perspective. But make no mistake, the way Jesus is legally the son of David is through Joseph. And adoption is as official as it can be, just like we're adopted. And he comes through the line of of Joseph, who's a line of David, by adoption. But interestingly, Mary also comes from the house of David. Both bases are covered. And both genealogies show it. And Jesus comes as the greater son of David, who would crush the head of the serpent. What, What had started was now in full swing and about to come full swoop, and the heel of the sun was about to come down on the head of the serpent. In time and space. You know, there is one story that gives us a bit of a picture of the humanity of Joseph and Mary that maybe we skip over. Maybe we don't read it during Christmas time as much. And I want us to consider that as we close. You see the last passage that's listed there? Now, I want you to, for a moment... Not to say that this is the primary means of application for this passage, but I want you to put on your parental hat or your aunt and uncle hat or your grandmother, grandfather, or or some role where you're watching kids. Everybody here at some point has had the occasion to watch some kids, especially those who are junior high-ish age. Now they travel, the family travels over to Jerusalem during Passover, and they are there to participate in the various festivities around Passover, which is a picture of the coming Messiah who's going to lay his life down for them. It's, it's an amazing thing to think of. And here they are traveling with Jesus, not putting all this together, no doubt. They go there it spends a couple days there and come on back. And it's a few days back to where they live, to come outside of Jerusalem. It would not be unusual to have the extended family uh, hanging together and the cousins in one big group hanging out, kind of like it happens maybe in some of your houses at Christmas time where everybody gets into the house and the cousins disappear playing video games or some other very productive activity down in the basement while all the adults are catching up on whatever they caught up on since last year, talking about the same stories again with a little new uh, nuance to it. Uh, that goes on and they're separated. And you might go a day or two and might not see your kid. That could happen, maybe at the dinner table. So we shouldn't think that Joseph and Mary were bad parents. It's just doing what everybody did at those times. They start heading back, and they get a day's journey out. They're out a ways now from Jerusalem. And Joseph and Mary, like you and I, parents, look around and say, hey, where's Jesus? Now, here's the problem. If that happened in my house, I know it would be my kid's fault. It would never be my fault, right? Now, it may be, you know what I'm saying, but our children are sinful. It's like we're sinful, so we can always blame somebody else. What do you do if you're Joseph and Mary? Well, he shouldn't be. Whoa, that that won't work. Uh, where is he? And they're scared because they don't know where he is. And now they're worried, just like any parent would be. They go all the way back to Jerusalem, and they find Jesus. And where is he? He's been sitting with the, the PhDs and the highly trained, ordained officials of the church in that day. And he's wowing them with all he knows. And I don't think he's bragging. He's just telling them what he knows. He, the stuff his parents have taught him, now with his Un, his mind not touched by the fall, is able to absorb it all. And he's just repeating it back. And it's an amazing display. He's doing what God called him to do to display this knowledge and to give this revelation to these people who are listening. That's exactly what God's will is for Jesus to be doing. No question. But you have mom and dad who are really concerned about where their son is. And look at the passage before you and you have this interchange. And when his parents saw him, They were astonished. I think the writer is very careful to say they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? She doesn't say, why have you sinned? She knows him by now. She knows that's not the problem. But why have you treated us like this? It's so hard for us. Behold, look, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, This is a special instance because we have no record of Joseph after this. So we know Joseph was alive at least until and through Jesus was 12. But we we don't hear of him again. The wedding at Cana is the first public ministry that Jesus performs, and there's only Mary there. No mention of Joseph. So who knows where in that span he died. But you have this last episode where mom and dad are standing there with Jesus and saying, why have you treated? We're so distressed. We're so tore up. And Jesus said to them, verse 49, what a teaching verse for all of us, because you'll have the same feeling Mary and Joseph had. I promise you will if you're a parent, or if you've watched kids for any amount of time, and you're responsible for them. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I mean, how could you respond to that? He's in the temple, the place that is the visible representation of God with the people. He is God with them, and he's reading the scriptures to them and wowing them. That's where he's supposed to be. Of course he is. We have to understand that's what God's will is. We have to accept God's will when it doesn't feel just right. And verse 50 is a great verse for us. It's a humbling verse. It's one for all of us, maybe when we pray. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. It doesn't say they argued with him further, or they tried to convince him he was wrong, or it just was too big for them to totally grasp. I mean, do you see the weight of all the prophecy that we've been studying through these three people before come down in this couple, this simple couple who are parenting a child? Joseph at one time has to ask himself at the beginning, can I trust God with what he's telling me he's going to do, even though everyone around is going to think something different? Great question for us. Because they're not... They're about as much like us as any of these characters, probably more so. When God calls us to do something that's not popular, do we do what God wants us to do? That's a great question. Will he give us the courage we need in the face of public pressure? Is it better to obey God than to worry about what other people think? All these things flood into our minds when we read the story. But what about this episode with Joseph and Mary and their child? When they don't understand God's will, do they accept God's will? That they leave the mystery to God. Not understanding always why it is he does what he does. But knowing he always does what's right. In this story, Joseph, through Joseph, by adoption, married by birth, Jesus was born in the Davidic line as the seed who would crush Satan. Just a baby to them, just a young child and now a, a preteen. But the one who would crush the head of the serpent had now come. It was thousands of years ago that God revealed in his word in Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It had begun. It had started right there. That was thousands of years ago. Then over 4,000 years ago for us, God speaks to a man named Abraham and said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless all the nations through you. And we know that's because from his seed would come the one who would undo what was done at the fall. 3,000 years ago, to you and us, to you and I, David was promised that there would always be a king on his throne, an everlasting king who would shepherd his people, who would deliver his people. We know that Jesus would be the one who would fulfill that prophecy. That's 3,000 years ago for you and I. 2,700 years ago. A prophet was told that a young virgin would conceive and bear a child. He will be mighty God, the wonderful counselor. He'll be born in Bethlehem, he tells another prophet, about the same time frame, 2,700 years ago. A tender shoot. And then, brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, an angel said to this couple, Fear not, for behold, I bring you, great news that will be for all the people. Back to the language of the Abrahamic covenant. To all the people. Everybody's going to be blessed by what I'm going to tell you, to this couple. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That was 2,000 years ago, and then a little less than 2,000 years ago, and most important to all of us, John records when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished, brothers and sisters? He crushed the head of Satan and it was finished. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed by your word. It is a book of of miracles, real miracles. These aren't legends. These aren't figments of our imagination. This is a record of what you have done in history. That's why it's so important. Lord, we thank you for this and how you have providentially watched over this whole process. And Lord, there are lots of things that are going to happen the next couple of days. We'll travel here, travel there, visit people that we want to hang out with. Maybe some we don't. But at the end of the day, Lord, the most important thing is that our salvation has been purchased by the perfect work of Christ that was forecasted many thousands of years before and it finds its root in eternity past in the mind and the heart of you, the Godhead. Pray, Lord, that we would be compelled to devotion, to love, and to service an outright reaction and appreciation for all you've done because we know this is true. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.